Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another issue of Forage. I am so glad that you're here for this episode. I appreciate you listening. We've been moving. We made the move successful. Then we went on vacation. I've had a lot of stuff going on. It's been quite a long break on this podcast, but I'm back and I'm back in full effect. If you could do me a favor and just click on the follow button or subscribe button, whatever it is, uh, whatever platform you're listening on that that would help me out so much because it would give me another subscriber. And also, if you could just do me a favor, click on the link and let me know where you are when you are listening to this particular episode. Now, I can see that I've got folks from all over the United States. I've got folks from, at this point, all over the world. But because of the way that this particular system is set up, I cannot see who is listening to which episode particularly. And that's what I'd like to know. So if you are in New Zealand and you're listening to Matthew chapter 5, I can't see that from the uh, tools that are made available to me. So I'd like to know that. I can see that somebody is listening from New Zealand, but I can't see what specifically they are listening to. So if you could help me out with that, that would be great. Just let me know. With that said, I'm going to jump right in here. We're at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, the Word of God. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill for assuredly i say to you till heaven and earth pass away one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven 
For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you'd be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. The Sermon on the Mount, which is what this is called, it's not for everyone. Now, the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament are for everyone. If you want to know what the gospel is, all these Christians that are around you talking about the gospel, this is where they get it from. Gospel means good news, and it is contained in those first four books. What you will find in those first four books is the story of Christ, his miraculous virgin birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. That's what you find in the Gospels. That's where all the miracles that he did are recorded. And all of those signs and wonders were to show the people that he was and is God in the flesh. So whenever I say that this particular Sermon on the Mount portion of the Gospel is not for everyone, what I mean is, if you are not following Christ, you're not going to like or understand what comes next. Now, if you are following Christ, you are his disciple, these Beatitudes, as they are called, they are for you. That doesn't mean that a sinner, unrepentant, someone who hates God, they can't read the same thing you can read. Sure, they can read it, but they are not going to understand. They're not going to apply it in the same way because they are still walking in darkness. In old times, what would happen, and, and we believe this is the way it was with Jesus being in that culture at that time, the teacher would sit and the students would stand. So I want you to kind of imagine Jesus sitting as the others stand around near him. They want to hear what he has to say. Today I'm a preacher. I pastor a church and I'm the one who stands and everyone else sits. When I was in the Air Force, I was an academic instructor. I would stand and everyone would sit down. And I've often wondered, like, if people had to stand up, <laughs> it might keep them awake in both uh, the Air Force and in church. <laughs> but all that said, I want to talk to you today about this word, blessed. Now, if you want to sound Victorian and speak in the old English, you would say blessed. 
blessed or blessed, either one, that's fine. It means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. We're going to unpack this a little bit as we look at each one of these. Verse 3. Now, verse 3 does not mean the poor are happy or you get a special blessing by being in poverty. That is not what this verse is about. Is about. This verse is about the opposite of pride. This verse is about having a true relationship and an encounter with Jesus. Because Jesus will show you through that encounter just how poor in spirit you really are. Isaiah 6, 5, the prophet says there, I'm a man of unclean lips. And this is the prophet of God. And he recognizes that in, in himself, he is in a hopeless state in the light of God. In my very first opportunity to be in full-time ministry, I had the privilege of being a part of a staff. And the concept there was that somehow, if you had to do all of the manual labor within the church building and the church grounds, that somehow that would keep you from being prideful. And again, this is an excellent example. Go back and listen to other episodes that I've done. This is an excellent example of legalism and how it doesn't work. It'll never work. It doesn't work. And this attitude of doing the hard manual labor around the church, that applied to the pastors. So as a pastor, I had to scrub toilets. I had to mop floors. I got to paint chalk on the parking lot uh, so that we would know where our parking spaces were. I mowed the grass. I did all those things. And I want to be clear, I am not above that. Your pastor is not above doing those things. It's a good thing to do them. It is not a bad thing to do them. But here's where the rub comes. It is about the condition of your heart before God. I can do the actions and it won't necessarily change a single thing about my heart and my attitude. In fact, I can do those actions and actually deceive myself, puff myself up with pride, thinking that I am holy. I'm so lowly. I'm down here scrubbing toilets or mopping the floor or washing the dishes. I'm such a humble servant of God. I'm not like those other folks who aren't doing this kind of nasty work. Friends, there was this idea and I'll, I'll leave it with this. There was this idea that uh, if you were going to have anything to do with musical ministry, if you were going to sing or play an instrument, that you had to have some other tasking outside of music ministry so that you wouldn't get pride in your heart. And it just doesn't work, friends. What does happen is people who are already spread thin because they're working full time, they have jobs, they have less time for volunteer work. So they have to make a decision. And oftentimes they could not do both. 
This verse is about the opposite of pride. You see, Jesus is saying that we are happy once we see ourselves and take him at his promise that he will give us the kingdom of heaven. This is for Christians. So I am blessed because I'm poor. I am poor in spirit. I've seen it. My eyes have been opened and I've called out to Christ and he has saved me and promised that I will have the kingdom of heaven. Verse four, why do we mourn? Blessed are those who mourn. We mourn over our failures and our weaknesses. We are mourning oftentimes because we know that we have failed our Lord. But friend, listen, Jesus delivers me. He delivers you. We have his strength in our life. He delivers me. My past failures and my weaknesses, they do not count against me. And that makes me happy. Do you see? Because initially you read that, you're like, you're thinking, blessed are those who mourn. The whole reason I'm mourning is because I'm not blessed. And here James is telling me, <laughs> it means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy are those who mourn? Where are you getting that from? Well, you have to understand, friends, that mourning is what happens when we are sorry over the things that we have done. But the blessing comes when Jesus comes in and says, I forgive you. Your sins are remembered against you no more. Now go and sin no more. Verse five, meekness. Meekness is seeing myself in light of God's word. And I am a mess without him. I am a lost sinner. I am in darkness. Friends, we're not to compare ourselves with others. This is where things get so messed up. We are to compare ourselves with the standard of the law of God. And with that comparison, you fall short. I fall short. We're not to compare ourselves with other people. The non-Christian will say, I'm not that bad. You know what that is, friend? That is pride. Because you think you're not as bad as you really and truly are. You say, well, I never killed anybody. I didn't steal anything. I took care of my family. I raised my kids. I gave money to the poor. I did all these things. Those are indeed good things, but without Christ, what is your motivation? Honestly, what is your motivation without Christ? And if you are depending on those things to somehow earn you cool points on the other side, because you think that you're smarter than God, you think your judgment is better than God's judgment. You are in for a rude awakening. I'm a musician. I play several different instruments. I've been blessed with that ability. I have a good ear for music. But I remember being in high school band. And we would have one person play a note. It was usually concert B flat. And we would all try to tune to that one note. And I remember thinking, as I was doing that as a, as a young person, 
I would think, what if the guy who's playing the B-flat isn't in tune? <laughs> We're tuning to the wrong thing. What if I can't even hear the guy because I'm listening to the guy next to me and he thinks he's in tune, but he's out of tune. And now I'm tuning to the wrong pitch. We're not to tune ourselves to our surroundings. There is a standard. Fortunately, today with digital instruments, um, you have digital tuners now. You just plug them up or use a battery. Or if you're playing a, an electronic keyboard or something like that, it's automatically tuned to C440 and you're good to go. And that's how it is. But that's because that is set at a standard and it doesn't matter what kind of instrument I'm playing. It has been tuned to that standard. Jesus tells us here that the meek will inherit the earth. So friends, what are we talking about here? We're talking about tuning ourselves to that standard, which is Christ. We're talking about an earth that we inherit. It's going to be an earth where the gospel is preached from sea to shining sea, north, south, east, and west, and everything in between as the kingdom of heaven is expanded here on this earth. And friends, we already as Christians, we are already in possession of it. Our king rules the nations. Our king has citizenship of the world over, every tongue, tribe, and nation. You see, Jesus already owns the earth. Verse 6, after I have a true evaluation of myself, let's look at verse 6. I'm evaluating myself in the light of God's word and with the help of in the illumination of the Holy Spirit, there should be a hunger and thirst inside of me for righteousness. You see, God's law was given to show us that we are failures. It's an ideal to strive for, but you're never going to be good enough. Your best is never going to do. My best will never do. Jesus promises to fill those who hunger for righteousness with these things. And if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you should know there is a difference. I have been filled to overflowing. Verse 7, we have been shown such grace and mercy, and this is what we are to show to others. We are to deal with others the way that we want them to deal with us. Be merciful. Verse 8, we talk about the pure in heart, being pure in your heart. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 19. That's a good reference for you to go look at. How do I get a pure heart? I get a pure heart when the Holy Spirit has reached into this life of mine, taken out the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in there that he can mold, that he can make. And Jesus promises that with that pure heart, we will see God. How do I get a pure heart? It is a work of Christ and Christ alone. Because friends, your heart is just like my heart. It is not pure. It becomes pure because of the power 
of Christ. Verse 9 talks about the peacemaker. Now, if I'm going to be a peacemaker, then I need to know the one who is the author of peace. Who is the author of peace? Who is the prince of peace? Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus promises us, those of us in his family, that we are going to be and we are his children. Hopefully that makes sense to you. You want peace with God? Come to Christ. If you are rejecting Christ right now in your heart, you are not at peace. And you're never going to be at peace. You're not going to be capable of making peace with anyone else. But you know what happens when the Holy Spirit moves in? You actually do turn the other cheek. You actually feel compassion for those who have wronged you. You actually forgive those who have hurt you. You actually strive to do what it tells us in the word of God, to to be at peace with men as much as it concerns you. See, friends, that's not the philosophy of this world. That is not the philosophy of the sinner who has a hardened heart against God. Now, verses 10 through 12, I want to be clear about this. This doesn't mean strange behavior. In other words, being persecuted for the sake of Christ doesn't give you an an excuse to act inappropriately. It doesn't mean that you get a blank check and you can just be crazy. And then when people make fun of you or they misunderstand you or they don't want to have anything to do with you, then you say, oh, well, I'm being persecuted for Christ. No, you're not. The reason they don't want you around is because you're not being very nice. I'll just say it that way. You can be a Christian and behave yourself. Paul and Silas in jail in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, they were beaten. Okay? They were beaten for preaching the gospel. And in the midst of this, they are rejoicing. They're singing songs to the Lord. Remember Stephen, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60. He was stoned to death. Jesus promises that if you preach the gospel, you will be hated. Look at 2 Timothy 3.12. And we are to rejoice... When we are clearly being persecuted for the cause of Christ, not because you're being a jerk. (laughs) Hopefully that makes sense to you. Why do we rejoice? We rejoice because we have a great reward coming our way and we are in good company. This is what they did to our Lord. This is what they did to the prophets before. And this is what our brothers and sisters have suffered down through the ages. Friends, salt preserves. Church, Christians, we are here to be a preserving presence and power. Where societies have remained close to Jesus and they have kept a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, they have done well. And history bears this out. 
Now I know if you, if you go through church history, you're going to find plenty of things that were hypocritical, plenty of things that were not done right, uh, things that were done wrong in the name of Christ. No question about it. Those are not the things that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the general improvement of society on the whole when Christ is received, when the preaching of Christ is not prohibited, where the gospel is given free expression in the public square, where Christ has been rejected time and time again. You see it over and over. The society will crumble. So, we're also to be light. And this is one of the church's uh, missions. We are to be the light of the world. We are to tell the world about Jesus. He is the light of the world. We are supposed to reflect him. I think about something that happened in 1963 in the United States. In 1963, that was the year that it was declared unconstitutional to have Bible reading and prayer in our public schools. Now, I want to be clear about this. I don't think that there is something magical about praying to God and about praying in the name of Jesus. I, I don't even think there's something magical about reading the Bible or even having it in the classroom with you in the public school. In fact, I've even heard some people say, hey, as long as there's testing in school, there's going to be praying in school. Ha ha, very funny. And I kind of see where they're coming from. What I'm getting at is that there is nothing magical or um, some kind of uh, extra benefit that you get by going through the ritual or the motions. But here's why this is important. In 1963, Officially, the Christian religion was kicked out of public school. Now, he may have been kicked out a hundred years before that, but it wasn't made official policy. You see, when we removed the Bible from the government schools, what was happening at that time was the society on the whole proclaimed, we no longer need or want God or his word in our educational system. You're trying to cram your religion down our throats. And you see, the removal of the Bible was only a symptom of a heart change that had happened many years before. So, like I said, there was nothing magical about removing the Bible or removing prayer from public school. What is significant about it is that it reflects the heart of the people. And I found some old statistics. I'm not going to go through them all. You can look these things up on the Internet for yourself. Um, and you, you can find uh, different conflicting reports. I read one report that said crime is actually down. Violent crime is actually down. Um, over the last several years, that may or may not be true. I think one thing that we can all agree on is that since 1963, teenage pregnancies have gone up. They have increased on the whole. 
uh, for 15 years before 1963. Pregnancies in girls from uh, ages 15 to 19 years were no more than 15 per 1,000 young girls. Now, again, I don't think there's anything magical going on here. I'm just pointing out that the heart of the society has changed. And now you can just go down and have your baby murdered. And you say, oh, but Roe v. Wade got overturned. Friends, you need to understand something about Roe v. Wade. I'm thankful that it was overturned, but it wasn't codified. It wasn't law. Okay. It was not law. It was a Supreme Court decision that was appealed to by those who wanted to murder their babies. And so now this debate has been pushed down to the state level and to the extent that our magistrates are not serving God will be the extent that the murder of the innocent continue. We've seen increase in illegitimate births, especially among the minorities within our culture. There's been an overwhelming increase in divorce, and the truth is most people don't even get married today. All of this since 1963. You can look it all up. There has been an increase in single-parent homes. There has been an increase in teen suicides. And at the same time this stuff has been going on, there has been a drop, there has been a drop, rather, in SAT scores. And so I think about the millions of murdered neighbors that we have. And they weren't murdered defending American interest in a foreign war. No, they were murdered through legal abortions since 1973. Moving on, in verses 17 through 20, God takes his word very seriously. And we had better do the same. There's this phrase, jot and tittle. It is the smallest Hebrew letter. That's what a jot is or a yot. It is the smallest Hebrew letter. A tittle is a very small ornament uh, over the Hebrew letter. Um, you, If you've ever seen Hebrew writing, you may notice that there are things that actually look like crowns uh, that are on the letter itself. And Jesus says that not one yote or one tittle will pass away. So I want to talk to you as I come to a close here about something you can find in um, uh, Romans 10, verse 4. It says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Well, friends, it's like this. Jesus came to fulfill the law for our sakes. He did not destroy it. Not even the smallest Hebrew letter, not even the smallest punctuation mark, nothing passes away. And it's all fulfilled in Christ. That's what we believe. That's what makes us Christians. Jesus 
changed negatives into positives. Now, instead of thou shalt not, Jesus says, you need to do this, or you should do this, or go and do these things. Jesus said, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. How can you do that? Well, you can't. You will fall short in your flesh, but his grace and his mercy is sufficient. It doesn't give us an excuse for not striving. We ought to strive, but my salvation is not dependent upon my works or what I'm trying to do. The Pharisees and the scribes, they would actually choke on a gnat, like if a bug flew into their mouth, they would choke so that they would not swallow blood because they weren't supposed to drink blood. For those of us who like a nice medium rare or rare steak, you can't do that in the law. You're not allowed to have the blood of an animal. We've been going through the book of Mark in our church where I preach. And one of the things we brought up in the book of Mark is this idea of work on the Sabbath and all of the stipulations that the scribes and the Pharisees had placed on this simple command. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So in your effort to keep the law, you actually just made yourself go deeper and deeper into bondage because there's no way you can keep it. Whenever God said that you're not to drink the blood of an animal, he didn't mean if a bug flies into your mouth, if you accidentally swallow that thing and it had the blood of an animal in it, uh, then you're guilty of breaking the law. That's not what he ever meant. You see, Jesus begins to explain to us that God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. Friends, it is not about what you do. It is what is in your heart. And the only thing that will change your heart is a work of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have this, may I suggest to you that you get alone with God and you do not stop praying and seeking after the Holy Spirit until he opens your eyes, opens your ears, and softens your heart. God looks at the heart, period. And you think you're going to work your way there? Friend, it is not going to happen. We all know about the old days whenever there was high illiteracy. Common folks couldn't read. We think about the Middle Ages. But you'll notice here in our Bibles, as you're reading the stories of Jesus you'll come across this phrase where Jesus says, you have heard it said. You have heard it said. Well, one, one reason that he said that is because many common folks couldn't read. And if you cannot read, friends, it's up to your leaders to tell you what the law is. And if the leader interprets it any way they want to interpret it, they're going to do so in a way that makes it look like they are keeping the law, but you are not. And this not only applies to things in the spiritual realm, it certainly applies to our culture and society today. You see, if you can't read, you are at the mercy of those who can read, and ignorance follows. And Jesus was coming into this, and he was saying, I am going to educate you with the truth. 
In verse 22, we see Jesus explaining what he actually means whenever he talks about being angry with your brother. You see, friends, the Bible tells us that we can be angry, but we are to sin not. God, according to scripture, is angry. He gets angry. Jesus got angry. Now, the difference between his anger and my anger is his anger is righteous. His anger is good and perfect. My anger, maybe not so much. I can get angry, but I am not to sin in that anger. You see, anger without cause in the heart of man is the real problem. Well, friends, that's it for now. I want to say thank you once again for tuning in. And I hope that this episode of The Forge is a blessing to you. Thank you so much and have a great day in the Lord. Don't let yourself